The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. The Writer Files and Podcasters for Justice are creators united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many, many others at the hands of police. This is a continuation of the systemic racism that's been pervasive in our country since its inception, and we're committed to standing against racism in all its forms. We believe that to be silent is to be complicit. We believe that Black Lives Matter. We believe that black lives are more important than property. We believe that we have a responsibility to use our platforms to speak out against this injustice whenever and wherever we witness it. In creating digital media, we've committed to using our voices to speak against racism and police brutality, and we encourage our audiences to be educated, engaged, and to take action. You'll find many resources in the show notes about how you can help. Thanks for listening. Greetings, scribes. The Writer Files is back from our short summer hiatus. And I'm your grateful host, Kelton Reed, praying that you're staying safe and sane during these intensely challenging times. And this week, award-winning international journalist, author, and serial pundit, Adam Skolnick, co-hosted our pandemic edition State of Travel Writing Roundtable with several like-minded travel junkies. Adam's the award-winning independent journo and author, who covers adventure sports, environmental issues, travel, and human rights for the New York Times, Outside, Playboy, and many others. And he recently began a co-hosting gig on the Rich Roll podcast. He's traveled to over 50 countries, worked on six continents, and contributed to over 35 Lonely Planet travel guides. He's also the author of One Breath, Freediving Death, and the Quest to Shatter Human Limits, and was the ghostwriter and narrator of David Goggin's hit memoir and audiobook, Can't Hurt Me, Master Your Mind and Defy the Odds, which has sold over 2 million copies worldwide. Masa Veda Morgan is a travel journalist whose wayfaring tendencies have taken her to more than 50 countries across all seven continents. She's a Lonely Planet author who contributes to guidebooks on destinations throughout Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and the Americas. Celeste Brash has been a travel writer for Lonely Planet since 2005 and has contributed to over 80 books and countless articles. Her travels have brought her to around 45 countries and she's written for numerous other outlets, including Islands Magazine and National Geographic's Intelligent Travel. And her photography has been published in magazines, including Travel and Leisure. 
Aaron Miller is an award-winning travel writer, photographer, journalist, and podcast host who's worked for Nat Geo Traveler UK, The Times of London, The Guardian, The Telegraph, and many others. And he's taught travel writing at a university level. His travel podcast, Armchair Explorer, was named Best Travel Podcast 2020 by The Guardian. And my sincere apologies to this amazing panel for seeming to duck out early on in the uh, recording. I had technical difficulties that prevented me from speaking uh, partway into the interviews, but the stories and insights were so compelling that I couldn't bring myself to interrupt the panel. And Adam did such a fantastic job as host. So you won't hear me uh, or you won't hear my voice much during this program, but you won't want to miss this incredible panel. And in this file, Adam and the panel discussed the unknown and unstable future of travel, tourism, and travel writing, how the industry can change for the better post-COVID-19, the different types of travel writers and the impacts of geotagging Instagram photos, why humans need to travel, the pitfalls of being a female or a woman of color as a travel writer, what the travel writing revolution means for the industry as a whole, and insider tips on how to break into writing about exotic and not so locales. Stay tuned. And if you're a fan of the writer files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. All right, welcome back to The Writer Files. We have a very special panel today. I am uh, honored to be joined by a a, uh, group of travel writers extraordinaire. Um, Obviously, not exclusively travel writers, but um, we have our returning guest host and bad penny, Adam Skolnick. Adam, how are you today? I am doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for those of you who have heard shows with Adam, we, t- we traditionally rap about all kinds of crazy stuff. But uh, this is a very, a very focused pandemic edition, state of travel writing roundtable with some really fantastic uh, like-minded guests. And um, yeah, we're going to get into it. Uh, Adam, if you haven't heard Adam's uh, fantastic episodes, which I'll link to some of those, he's an award-winning international journalist, um, an author ghostwriter and um our own international correspondent and of course uh we've got some fantastic guests joining us as well i would like to introduce uh masaveda morgan who is also a travel journalist and uh yeah thanks for taking the time to do this today thank you for having me so um yeah just uh give us some the kind of the condensed version of how you got into travel writing and um you've got this great story about you know how you how you used to be an editor and then you kind of decided that you wanted to get out on the road. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about your superhero origin story <laughs> and uh, where, where you're making your home base and how you're surviving these days. Yeah. Well, like you said, it was, it was kind of a in reverse kind of story for me. I had been an editor my entire career um, and just sort of by happenstance had lived abroad, had traveled a bit when I was in my twenties and I finished grad school. I couldn't find a job. And then uh, it happened that Lonely Planet was hiring editors in Nashville, Tennessee, and I applied and I got that job. And um, I was uh, the destination editor for South America for about four years. And so I was responsible for all of the company's content for that region of the world. 
I got the opportunity to do a guidebook authoring gig because that's what like part of the role was commissioning writers to go travel all over the region and update the guidebooks. And so to kind of get a better understanding of what we were asking people to do, um, we were given the chance to go do an authoring gig. And I went to the Galapagos Islands because why not? <laughs> kind of an amazing yeah. place. And I hadn't made it there yet. And uh, from day one on the ground, I was like, oh, this is this is ideal. Like I need to be out on the road, engaging with people, um, having these experiences. And yeah, I got back to the office and within a few months I had given my notice and immediately jumped into the writer pool and uh, had the opportunity to cover um, lots of places all over the world, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, the Americas and Europe. And right now I'm in Washington, DC. So things are, things are hot here. Well, um, thank you for taking the time to do this. So uh, our next guest is Celeste Brash, and she has been a travel writer for Lonely Planet as well since 2005. I think you've contributed to over 80 books now, Celeste. Is that correct? Yeah, I've lost count, but um, it's definitely over 80. Amazing. And uh, yeah, I mean, you've written for lots of different magazines. And, and um, I should say that all of our guests here have these incredible uh, photographic skills. So, um, of course I'll link to all of their, uh, home bases there and their Instagram accounts are, are something to behold. So I'll also add an Instagram account for everybody, but, um, yeah. How are you surviving? Uh, where are you making your home base and give us your condensed, uh, superhero origin story? Um, I am speaking to you from Portland, Oregon. I'm actually waiting for my husband to get back from French Polynesia where he's been stuck in quotes, stuck. He left in November. Um, I last saw him in February, so I'm pretty excited for him to get home. Um, and that's where we made our home for many years. And that's sort of part of my origin story. Um, I was living on a very remote coral atoll on a Tahitian pearl farm for five years. I had two kids there. Uh, we started the business with my, um, my, hus- my father-in-law and uh, anyway, when I when we moved back to Tahiti in the year 2000, uh, the Internet had started. And it was something that, you know, I basically lost five years of my life. I was like literally on a desert island, like any movies, anything that happened between 95 and 2000. <laughs> like it's a complete blackout zone for me. Um, so anyway, so the Internet, this crazy thing called the Internet had started and we moved to Tahiti and I'd always been a traveler and I'd always been into writing. I'd, I'd traveled very widely before I moved to Tahiti. I minored in Southeast Asian studies. I speak a few languages and um, yeah, so I started just trying my luck and shooting out articles uh, over the internet. I got a bunch of stuff published and then uh, my origin story for Lonely Planet is actually a really long story, so I'm not going to go into that. But um, eventually, yes, I did start working for them in 2005, basically luck being that they really wanted somebody based in Polynesia in the South Pacific. So I kind of became their go-to person for that and then sort of branched out and ended up doing a lot of Southeast Asia, Canada. I've done some South America, North America, and most recently Europe. I was um, on my first Europe title when the whole COVID-19 started and uh, I had to uh, leave France with about three hours notice kind of towards the end of that gig. So, and I've been home ever since. So that's me. Cool. Cool. 
escape from France. <laughs> yeah. France. Escape from France. <laughs> it, yeah. Sorry, Aaron. So our next guest is Aaron Miller, an award-winning travel writer, photographer, journalist, and podcast host. And uh, I should say that um, every other writer on the panel is a because a, a lonely planet. Um, part of is you know has a bio that includes Lonely Planet, except for Aaron. Um, so I apologize, Aaron. I'm feeling pretty left out about that. Yeah, actually, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but and I don't know if my superhero origin story is going to match up to Celeste's uh, tropical island uh, tale, which was pretty awesome, by the way. Um, but I also have a blackout from '95 to 2000, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Um, well, you've written for all of these different incredible international outlets. Uh, you've taught travel writing at a university level, and you have this fantastic podcast, The Armchair Explorer, which is, uh, yeah, has garnered some fantastic uh, mentions and was named Best Travel Podcast 2020 by The Guardian. But uh, yeah, tell us a, a little bit about your how you came into travel writing and also, uh, yeah, where you're making your home. I think you're right up the street from me, but... I am right up the street for you. When all this is over, we'll have to go for a beer. Yeah, I'm I'm just down That's the right. road in in Louisville, Colorado, sort of right on the edge of the the Rocky Mountains. Um, yeah, I ran away. I ran away from London uh, about seven years ago uh, to to Colorado and uh, just got stuck here. I love it so much. Um, and most of what I do now is is kind of covering North America for the British press. So I work for the Times, for London, and and the Guardian, and people like that. And my origin story is, is basically a complete blag, which is an English word. Celeste, you'll you'll be familiar with that word, um, given your 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 British background. But for those that don't know, a blag is 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 kind of like a kind of harmless con, uh, like you would maybe blag your way into a nightclub if you weren't on the door. Uh, and that's what happened with me with travel writing. I um, I've been working in the in the music industry for about ten years and kind of had enough and decided that uh, you know I was finally going to live out my dream of being a writer. And for six months, I kind of was just stuck in my office all alone. Uh, not getting anything published. And then uh, finally, I, I, I had this idea to do a story called um, a galactic safari, I called it, which is kind of a fancy way to talk about st uh, stargazing. And the Sunday Times got hold of this idea and, and um, said to me, you know, oh, we, we, we like this idea, but, you know, who are you? You, you haven't had anything published. And, and so, uh, you know, you can write it for us, but I can't guarantee it's going to be published. So I had to blag the whole trip. I had no money. I had to get out there on a plane. I talked Brian May, who did his astrophysics, his PhD in astrophysics in this island, Tenerife, which is also the best place in Europe for stargazing. Talked him into doing an interview about it. And uh, yeah, somehow a proper out miracle out of nowhere managed to bring this article together. And uh, then after that, was I was Aaron Miller, who'd written for the Sunday Times. And I just, I've, I've kept on blagging it since then. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a freelancer, you got to hustle a little bit. Uh, I'm sure no one on this uh, panel understands uh, not that, that. Not a little bit. Not even at all. <laughs> <laughs> never been there. Never done it. <laughs> no, yeah, no one's admitting it to it. Just leaving me hanging out to dry now. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all also have a new, a new descriptor for our bios. Blag. <laughs> Blagging. Blagging. It's Blagging. a great word. And I always try. I teach Americans it all the time. Yeah, I blagged earlier today. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Every good day needs a good blag. Yeah. <laughs> Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. 
Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books, and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, um, obviously we are gathered here today to uh, talk about the state of the industry and, and specifically kind of address, you know, as, as places begin to reopen, you know, we're not post pandemic, obviously, I don't know if there is such a thing, but a lot of these restrictions are being lifted and travelers are probably itchy to get, get back out into the world. I guess, I mean, maybe Adam, you could kind of point the panel at you know, obviously the tur- you know, travel and tourism has taken this huge hit, as have many, many industries. But, you know, this $8 trillion industry that has previously kind of defied, you know, the ups and downs of the market, so to speak, has seen these, you know, these global losses in the trillions, right? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the only reference point, really, since I've been doing this job is um, the economic crisis 2007 to 89. And even then, there was a whole section of the globe that didn't really get their crisis till two years later. So, you know, Australia didn't feel that until 2010 or 11, I think it was, and Southeast Asia as well. So there's, you know, a time where everything is shut down. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen it. I think it's unprecedented. You know, I think we've all read it in the news, but at the same time that this is happening in terms of ability to travel, you have this media uh, business that's also suffering because every uh, you know all the money is being brought in, so uh, no one's spending. So you have uh, not you know you have editors being laid off, books being put on hold. So it's this crazy crisis moment. So maybe we could just start there and uh, you know go around the the crew and see what people think of what they've been witnessing i mean what what's your take been on it maybe we could start with masaveda gosh i'm reeling i don't know about you guys but it's really kind of terrifying but i also at the same time i trust that people are going to be 
aching to get back out into the world again. Um, so hopefully there will be more opportunities for people like us to get out there and, and sort of guide people through just how to like reactivate that desire. But yeah, right now everything is just a, is a big question mark and it's um, really hard because so many people that I know <laughs> professionally and personally are impacted. I mean, across all industries, but specifically in travel, because it's just like everything else, it's just the, the pause button has been hit and everything is sort of uncertain. But I think that, you know, human curiosity will prevail. And ultimately, that's going to lead people to wanting to get back on the road and they're going to need somebody to tell them how to do it. So we'll see. Yeah, I, mean, I think, uh, Celeste, you, were, you, you know, the question is who they who are they going to want to to guide them? Uh, they being the tourists and or or would be travelers. And uh, what do you think about that? Do you think it's going to come back to the way it's been? Do you, you see that changing? You know, I mean, I'm I'm kind of deer in the headlights about all of this. I mean, I have absolutely no idea. I have hopes, and I hope that um, you know we can take this moment to change the industry a little bit, that we can sort of reevaluate what we've been doing, um, how we've been showing people around. I think guidebooks have actually been fairly responsible in that, at least in the last five to 10 years. We've, we got a pretty bad rap before that for ruining places. But as the internet took over and people started using places like TripAdvisor and you know Instagram, um, travel really just sort of went Ape shit, you know. I mean, it's like that's when we started really experiencing a lot of the over tourism, the selfie tourism, things like that. And guidebooks sort of became the anti that they were less people were using them, but they sort of became the way that you could actually get off the beaten track, despite people were still saying, out, you know, not in the guidebook as something to say that it was on the off the beaten track, which wasn't true at all. Like every time I used a guidebook, I would actually find myself in more interesting places than I could have found, you know, scouring the internet for hours on end, which is what everybody else seemed to be doing. Um, so, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe it, this is all a way for us to reevaluate tourism, to sort of curb that over tourism, to uh, make it something special. I think travel writing has a long way to go, you know, maybe these are all my hopes. These aren't things I think are actually going to happen, <laughs> I should say. Um, that's putting a little bit too much faith in, uh, in everything. I think, you know, the, the, I think the urge will be to go ex back exactly where we were. But I hope that we won't do that. I hope that we can, you know, use this to start over and in a more responsible way. Aaron, what do you think? What, what have you been yeah. observing from your perch in terms of like watching the COVID thing take hold and, and, uh, and where travel, the state of travel writing before and after. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I agree with a lot of that Celeste just said there in terms of it's an opportunity to pause and kind of reflect upon where the industry is going. I think a lot of the people that that I know in the industry, whether that be on the sort of publishing uh, editorial side or, or on the, you know, destination side, are, are really looking at this as a, as a way of, uh, you know, as an opportunity to, to sort of pause and reflect upon the kind of travel and tourism that we should be pushing forward. And I think as travel journalists, that's, you know, that's the key thing. That's the key part of our job is to be part of that conversation. And we've got to really decide, you know, um, which side of the coin in that conversation do we want to come down on? And, and I'm hoping that, uh, that people will travel less. I think people will travel less after this and, and behaviors will change a little bit, but I'm hoping that they'll travel 
uh, deeper and more authentically. And I think that, that I'm hoping that they'll choose to do types of travel that benefit locations and destinations rather than just big, huge multinational uh, companies. You know, travel is obviously a, a huge global industry and it supports many millions of small businesses. And, and all those small businesses are, are kind of under threat with this. Uh, so I think travel will come back. I think, you know, as a as a species, we're explorers, we're wanderers, and I think that's kind of in our blood. And I, and I think right now in our culture, we have a very experience-driven culture and economy. So I think that we're, we travel will come back, but um, I think it will hopefully come back a little bit more consciously. Um, and uh, and, I th- and I hope that travelers will choose to um, maybe travel long haul less, travel local a bit more, uh, but travel more deeply and a little bit off the beaten track when they do. And I, And I think it's you know, our job as travel journalists to be a part of that conversation and part of steering that conversation. And I think as as people aspiring to to be travel writers or to getting published, there's an opportunity in that too, because um, uh, because no one's quite sure uh, where it's going to go. And and you know, there there's always opportunities in in catastrophes. And I think there's a real opportunity to to put into the into the mix what what your hopes and feel feelings are for how people could continue to explore the world in a positive way. Yeah, it's like an eight trillion dollar industry or something, right? I mean, I think right. it's one of those industries, and if you include dining in that as well, I mean, which kind of folds in, it's probably even a bit more than that. And uh, so you have this enormous industry. I think I think it benefits small businesses in a huge way, more so than multinational corporations. I think it's one of those industries that's been somewhat recession proof over the years. But in terms of like off the beaten track stuff, you and Celeste both said that, I, I, you know, I, I'll open this up to the panel, maybe start with Aaron. Do you geotag your photos? I mean, are you, are you conscious of, I used to be when I first started travel writing, I, I felt like it was my obligation to always be upfront everywhere I went. I would never take anything off the list. I would never not tell people where I went or, or, you know, especially if I had an amazing experience. And lately I've been doing that less and less. Um, I've been kind of, I have, I've, I have been holding something back, uh, here and there. What do you guys think? Do you always geotag? Do you feel like that's our obligation? I, you know, I, I, I totally get where you're coming from in terms of, I, there, there are times obviously when you feel guilty and you, you, you find this incredible waterfall tucked away in, in the, you know, inside the Grand Canyon and, and you tell people about it because it's this amazing place and it's this inspiring place and you want people to find it. But then of course, in doing that, you're, you're making it a little less special, a little less hidden each time. And, and, um, so I think there's always that, that conflict, um, you know, with, with travel and with travel writing, I guess the way I approach it, I do a lot of uh, outdoor and adventure writing. And, and, uh, one of the reasons why I'm passionate about that is, you know, I feel like the first step in kind of conservation and caring for the world is, is, kind of jumping headfirst in and, and experiencing it. And so I feel like if you can encourage people to to get outside and and kind of experience that wonder of the natural world, then um, that's that's a positive thing. Um, and that's a sort of more broader thematic uh, reason for the writing rather than a, a specific destination. But I think you're right. I think it's, you know, it, we, we have a responsibility that maybe we don't talk about often enough to, you know, not to... F- you know, not to just promote one destination or and and get it to the place where it's it's um, it becomes almost unenjoyable because so many people are there and and maybe COVID pre- presents an opportunity for that because um, with social distancing, you know, people aren't going to necessarily want to go to the Grand Canyon or to Rocky Mountain National Park where it's it's you know absolutely rammed. If you go to the 
you know, to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. It's it's you know, in the summer holidays, it's it's a scrum. But um, there are other places you can discover, um, you know, in the north side and, and inside the canyon, for example, that that are you know hardly anyone goes to. So um, there's a, a kind of hook right now, which is like wanting people to go to to, to places where there's a little bit. Um, you know, less visited. Um, and there's a good opportunity, I guess, to try and promote some of those places now too. What do you ladies think about about geotagging? Yay or nay? Um, well, I personally think that it's really, I, I do do it like when I'm using Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all of those kinds of things, just as I'm going about sort of posting my own personal perspective, not necessarily um, speaking as a travel guidebook writer. But when I think about the places that I'm going to include in content like guidebooks, I really think it's important to look at um, who is going to be receiving these travelers and what is the impact going to be for them. You know, if it's an economy that could really use tourism and it's a place that's undiscovered and it's something that they're really proud about, um, which I think you can kind of gauge just by engaging on the ground with people, then I say absolutely. But then in, you know, other cases like sometimes people just don't want people there because they don't want to go through the effort or Maybe there's like an air of pretentiousness about it. And in that case, like, well, also like kind of screw it. Like people want to have these authentic local experiences. And I'm sorry you don't want like (laughs) Americans there, but like we're coming. You know what I mean? Because it's all about at the end of the day, we travel to like, it's about cross-cultural understanding and, and getting to know sort of people outside of your orbit. So I think I'm pro personally. Yes. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Masaveda. I've always done it on an individual basis, um, just sort of depending on, I think, if the place could do with tourism or if it would be a terrible thing for it. Um, the other thing that I've noticed over the years is the way that tourism was going is that if a place was really off the beaten track and was hard to get to, like if you had to, you know, somehow finagle local transport and you know, there weren't really places you could book online to stay. People weren't really going to go anyway. Um, that sort of adventurous traveler is is a few and far between. And when you do geotag something that's sort of out there, um, it's not for everybody. And I think I, I tend to do really remote destinations, some of which don't even have like, you you know, you look for your little geotag on Instagram or whatever, and it's not even there. Mm. You know, places like that you know, unless there's like a new transport option or a hotel opens up or, you know, some fancy person goes and takes a whole bunch of pictures and makes it, you know, and have a million followers and then suddenly everybody wants to go. But in general, the really adventurous sort of very off the beaten path places, I I have really seen that, you know, most people don't want to do that. That's not why most people travel. And for the few people who do, you do kind of want to share that because, it's it's hard to find those places. So I'm I'm fairly pro geotagging, but there are, there are situations when I wouldn't do it also. If I thought, you know, the people didn't want people coming in, if I thought I was actively going to affect a place in a negative way, I would I would not. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I I think I hold it back usually if it's um if it's related to the natural world like uh black t- black tip uh shark nursery I found in Thailand that nobody knew about that I just stumbled onto baby sharks everywhere and I just didn't didn't include it, even though I had the destination in, in, in mind. 
exactly for that reason because you you, you got to have you know whale if you if you know there's a place where whale sharks go and they don't have the planes and the boats spotting them taking people out there i kind of leave that alone just sanctuaries but otherwise i, I agree i think uh if, if it's already got some sort of a footprint and it can handle visitors then uh err on the side of including hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Masaveda, you mentioned something that was really interesting and it kind of sparked my interest just on on why we travel. Uh, maybe just uh, if you guys want to talk about what it is that kind of got you into wanting to do this for a living and, and wander the globe. I mean, the idea that it's almost like, is there a better teacher than travel? Is, is there a better way to learn about yourself um, and the world and how little you know than, than, than wandering around? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? I mean, on a, on a personal level, I guess I... I, I sort of fell in love with writing before I fell in love with, with traveling. And, and it was amazing to, to combine those two things. Uh, and I, I suppose for people listening that, you know, that are writers and are, are maybe wanting to get into travel writing, but do more fiction or whatever. Um, I found traveling just such a catalyst for creativity and for, for writing. And that's one of the things I just absolutely love about it. And I think it's, there's so much in the craft of travel writing that kind of, uh, transfers to, to other areas of, of writing, um, that I, you know, for me, it was just a, a wonderful way, you know, a wonderful form of, of, of that art form to, to get into. And, um, you know, I think that everyone has their own perspective on it, don't they? I mean, for, for me, uh, you know, I try and look for sort of more outdoor stuff. Um, uh, I thought that, you know, I come up, was it Masaveda? I think you said about the cross-cultural side of things. I think that's hugely important. Um, you know, there's a lot of people still who who don't have a passport or don't have the opportunity to travel, and and um, I think one of the jobs that we can do is 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 to try and bring that those worlds closer and and to do a sort of you know a really careful job at um, presenting those those different cultures in a way that you know sparks new ideas in, in people and and um, and ultimately that's what travel is about, isn't it? It's it's kind of bringing people closer together. It's about getting new ideas. It's about being inspired and inspiring other people, you know, for me, it's just, it's one of the, the most satisfying art forms in that sense. If you can, if you can go somewhere and, and be truly inspired and have, an, you know, a moment of pure wonder and amazement, and then find a way to, to, to convey that to somebody in a small way uh, through your writing, then that's, that's a dream come true. Love it. Anybody else want to chime in? What, why, why did you, what made you fall in love with writing? I mean, with the uh, traveling Celeste? Um, you know, I, I, I've been traveling since I was a little kid. I, I mean, m part of my, one of the bios I use is that I was conceived in England, discovered in Mexico and born in the U S. 
So I grew up with a traveling family. We didn't have a lot of money. We used to drive down to Mexico in our pickup truck and camp on the beach. And uh, my dad took me on my first big trip when I was 13 to the Maya Peninsula of Mexico. And it just freaking blew my mind. And um, I actually wrote my college essay about it. Um, and it, it I, I, we climbed to the top of um, a pyramid in Coba on the Maya Peninsula. And, um, and I remember looking out and there were these mounds of, of archaeological sites that hadn't been cleared that were just covered in brush. And this was back before that uh, site was developed. And, you know, there were guys hunting deer like out in the forest. And I, I felt like I just entered this whole other universe and it, it just completely blew my mind. And, you know, I grew up in a, a fairly affluent area and just meeting the kind people in Mexico, you know, we met this random family. We always sort of, we never had a lot of money. So we always did, you know, guest houses and little tiny places and sort of rented a car and got lost on roads. This was with my dad who basically I would attribute um, sort of teaching me how to travel when I was a kid. And um, yeah, it just took me so far out of my reality and opened my mind so much, even at a young age, that it was from 13, it was all I ever wanted to do. I mean, I used to work and save up and send mm-hmm. myself over the summer. And mm-hmm. I, I guess I've been doing it so long, I don't even really know how to put it into words. <laughs> yeah. But it's where I feel the most alive. Like I feel the best on a, you know, on a bus in Honduras, not where, you know, I'm the only possibly woman and, and people are staring at me and I come off and I've made 10 friends, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's where I feel the most alive and it's where I am the happiest. And, um, and, uh, yeah, and as I've gotten older, I've realized that it's it's mostly the human aspect more than anything else. It's more the I, I, my trips nowadays, especially all depend on the people that I meet along the way. Beautiful. Yeah. And Masaveda, you have the similar story or when did you start wandering? I actually did not get my first passport or leave the United States until I was 25. Um, I'm 36 now, so it's just been you know a little over a decade. And. Yeah, I've covered I've covered some pretty decent ground. I've, I've been, um, been <laughs> made very, up for less time. <laughs> yeah, I made up for less time, big time, and like you know, having having been to all seven continents is definitely a uh, achievement that I pat myself on the back for. Yeah, and I don't I don't feel bad bragging about it because it's kind of rad. No, it's great. Uh, yeah, and that trip to Antarctica was by far um, the best of my life. But um, even with that, like. I've just always considered myself a, a global citizen. For, I mean, it probably had a lot to do with my upbringing, my parents, um, my faith growing up. Um, I'm a member of the Baha'i faith, and, and the whole, the entire purpose of that faith is to um, celebrate unity and diversity that we see in humanity, uh, rather mm-hmm. than letting it be something that divides us. And I think a big part of what drives me um, is is wanting to be of service, right? To open mm. people's eyes and share a different perspective because that's how we're going to achieve this unity in the end. And um, I think with all of the ills of society that are going on right now, especially in the last couple of weeks, like mm-hmm. it's more relevant than ever. Um, you know, and Aaron, what you said about like the purpose of it being to bring worlds closer together, like that's just always sort of been what drives me. Um, it's not so much about like me and what I think about a place or like my, you know, my navel gazing and introspect. Cause I'm like, 
highly empathic. So I'm, I'm always taking on um, sort of the experience of other people, but I really try to just use that as a, as a lens, as a way to like hold up this tapestry of all these beautiful cultures and so many things that on the surface seem very different. But at the end of the day, I think um, for me, it's about human connection. And I think that that's what it is for most everybody. Um, when, when you really come into a trip wanting to engage and wanting to, to learn something from it. Um, so that's just kind of been the thing that um, motivates me whenever I go anywhere. Yeah, well, let's let's dive into the last couple of weeks while we're, we're talking about it. Because I remember when I first met Celeste, it was after I had been working on Lonely Planet books for a while. I've, I've done 30-something, 30 35 of them. And my first couple of them, I, I wound up in such kind of like crazy, small towns, dangerous areas, um, in cheap, you know, guest houses. And I was thinking, you know, this is kind of a hostile working environment for women. That's <laughs> what I was thinking about. I'm like, and, and came away with such respect for the women in the industry. Um, and then I know that you recently, I don't know how recently it was, but you had, um, and I remember you posted on Facebook, Masoveda, about a travel writing while black episode, some sort of racism that you encountered. So maybe you and Celeste can talk about kind of the tip, the the kind of pitfalls, the extra stuff you have to deal with on the road when you're already trying to work hard. Yeah, I feel like I don't have anything to say next to Masaveda about this. I mean, she's got like the double whammy. Um, I yeah, I mean it. Um, uh, for me, I used to sort of just forget that I was female. That was kind of my my secret weapon. I just wasn't. You know, I, I would dress in a giant sack. I always would make myself as like as unattractive as possible and um, and just sort of go forward and not really, you know, I would I would be careful. That was just sort of ingrained in me because, um, you know, what I've been through um, as a woman um, that we've all been through. But um, but I wouldn't I would just sort of go through it in sort of the Zen way. And if I ended up in a in a really dodgy situation, which did happen a number of times, I would um, I would allow myself to get myself out of it very quickly. I guess I started. I had a really bad experience on my first solo trip when I was nineteen. I, I was um, I was assaulted, and um, I'm kind of I, I mean I'm not glad that that happened, but I'm glad that it happened when it did because it sort of set me up for the rest of my solo travel career to be able to say no, to be able to leave when I didn't feel comfortable and, um, you know, to be very, very cautious while at the same time, not being afraid, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you, Celeste. Like I certainly understand, um, wanting to kind of minimize myself in a way to, um, cover my body or, you know, particularly when I'm in um, Muslim countries, like I'm happy to cover my hair or do whatever I need to do to um, just sort of take that, take that pressure off in a way because the male gaze penetrates globally. It doesn't matter where you are, you're still going to be, have that, you're going to have that put upon you. And, you know, it just kind of made me think when you said, Celeste, that you sort of try to forget that you're female. Like I completely can relate to that as a woman, but as a person of color, it's just something that unfortunately is just not an option for me. Not because it's something that I want to forget, but like the world won't let me forget that. And that's certainly something that I have found 
um, as a person of color, as a, as a black and Filipina woman who, um, can kind of like, I'm a little bit ethnically ambiguous in some ways. Like I've been to Brazil, Morocco, uh, Indonesia, all kinds of places. And, and I can kind of pass for a local, but you know, I'm still rather tall, rather muscular, rather kind of imposing. I command every room that I walk into and people notice and, and I, um, I can't hide. <laughs> so, um, I just had to learn how to be okay with that and uh, and to just keep going because, you know, you're only out there for so many days. You've got a limited budget. You have a brief that you have to meet. And I can't let, like, the pressure of that or the pain of, of the experiences and, and people uh, giving me a hard time derail me. I certainly, like, give myself space to, um, you know, for self-care to kind of nurture my wounds and and if I need to lay in bed and cry for a day, like I budget that into my time. Um, but <laughs> I, I like for real. Really for that, for that one. Yeah, I should. I should start charging. <laughs> like, if I just have like mental <laughs> health <laughs> racism budget, please. Exactly, like, exactly. Like, every woman deserves like a day to hide in. Like, you know, it, if if we're putting up with bullshit, like we deserve uh, a little bit of time to recover from that, and mm. it should be it should be on the publisher's time. <laughs> Um, yeah, we know so, love, we know how they love to pay for that stuff. Oh yeah, occupational hazard, <laughs> occupational hazard. But um, yeah, but I also recognize, and this is a big part of why I decided to um, sort of go out into the world and, and get out from behind the desk as an editor, because like there are so few people out there in the world who look like me who are doing this. Yes. And the fact that I had access is a privilege, and it's a privilege that I have. And it's a responsibility, frankly. Um, like, I found myself in this position through a series of life and professional choices that I made. And so, like, how am I going to utilize that to let people who look like me know that opportunities like this exist? Yes, but also that the world is open to them. And if the world's not entirely open to them because people refuse to serve them in a restaurant or call them names, like, they should know about that. And that's just an experience that, like, other people who are not like me aren't going to get. And so that's why I think it's just so important that in any scenario, in any industry, like diversity matters and different perspectives matter. So um, that's that was kind of like the primary reason why I really, really felt like I had to do because I wanted to because it was like way more fun than sitting behind a desk as an editor. But I also recognize that there was just a huge, huge responsibility that I had. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, isn't the... Uh... And Aaron and Celeste, feel free to chime in here with us. But um, it's almost like I wanted to kind of go into the origins of travel writing just as a as a genre, um, and then we can get into uh, the nuts and bolts and how a research trip might work, um, and, and then and then see if we can if there's other things that we need to explore. But um, I can't remember as if it, who was the first kind of like the early early travel writers, but it was always kind of. Um, America, you know, the idea of the, the, the adventurous male out there on their own, often Europe, most often European or American. Um, so it comes from that kind of white male, uh, privileged white male, you know, perspective, wasn't it? It always was like that. And then all of a sudden we, we kind of, with the wheelers, it became hippies on the road and kind of the hippie travelers, um, that, that wrote the guidebook that became the original Lonely Planet guidebook. And then it became, you know, college and gap year but it was always there's always been this level of privilege often uh white 
travelers that the perspective has been it, coming from that perspective. That's what you're addressing, right, Masaveda? Yes, yes, yeah. definitely. And so what you're doing, what, and that's one thing that's really exciting in the industry in general, right? More uh, writers from different backgrounds bringing different perspectives to it. Mm-hmm. And it's been really interesting, um, obviously, in the last couple of weeks with um, all of the protests, with the revolution, basically, guys, like that's what it is. That's what we're calling it. That's what I'm calling it. With the revolution happening here in 2020, yeah. um, there has been a lot of buzz and everybody is starting to point to um, people of color, black people doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And the thing that, it, that that's a little bit frustrating, I'm not going to lie, is like, guys, we've been here <laughs> the whole time. Right. Shouting from the rooftops, trying to get people to notice, trying to get people to promote our stories. Um, just today, actually, I, I have a good friend, Travis Levius, who is uh, also a travel writer. He's um, He posted a, an Instagram post today that was just a roundup of Black travel journalists. And I reposted it. And like I got like 50 new followers on Instagram, which has not happened to me in a very long time because I'm not not particularly proactive about my Instagram account. Like I used to be, but I've just kind of um, not been inspired by that space as of late. And uh, on the one hand, it's like, oh, okay, good. You guys are finally noticing. But then it's like, what took you so long? Like, did it really take this kind of uprising, this kind of protesting to get people to see that like other perspectives matter and other people's experiences matter? But I guess it takes what it takes, right? Yeah, I guess however you get here, I mean, it's good that it's happened. And um, I mean, it's crazy huh, how the world has been turning on a dime from one thing to another, from the like most boring apocalypse ever to this incredibly invigorating, inspiring revolution, uh, as you're calling it. I mean, it's just not, I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing? Yeah. I mean, it, like, is everyone's head spinning or what? That's wild. Yeah, I, I I like cry like once a day. I like read something and it's you, but it's you often the last you know, a few weeks, it's all been for good reasons. Yeah. It should have been happening so long ago. And I just read these headlines and I just, I just have tears in my eyes and, and I'm just, thank God this is happening. Like, you know, yes, it should have happened earlier. Um, but it's happening. And I really, really, really hope that we see things actually changing when we come out the other end. Exactly. Like, I think the, the big thing for me is, like, is this just virtue signaling on social media to like people, you know, or people just sort of giving this um, impression that they're allies or like, are you actually going to be, are you actually going to be like out in the streets doing things and having conversations and humbling yourself? Because we all have so much to learn, no matter what your race is, right? But like, I think it's uncomfortable and the conversations have to happen in order for change to happen. And I, I think some people, you know, it's really changing their thoughts. I mean, it's really changing their outlook on things. You see people who sort of came out in the beginning and were like, yeah, all lives matter or whatever. And, um, <laughs> you know, I've had like a huge backlash of people explaining, let us, okay, sit down for a second, take a seat. We're going to explain this to you gently um, and come out the other end being like, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. And that's very rare. It like, is rare. Actually change people's perception on things and their minds on things. And uh, I mean, it's a major shift in consciousness. And I, I, I just really hope it sticks. 
Me too. I grew up in a primarily white community and, and I obviously have a lot of white friends and, and my circle of friends is, is getting more diverse as I get older. But there were people like on social media who I never in a million years thought that I would see them post something about Black Lives Matter. And mm. so it's been it's really been a pleasure to see. But I'm also kind of looking at it with a critical eye of like, OK, so you posted that on Facebook, but like, what are you going to do? Like, can we check back in in a month? And are you still going to be about this? Or is this just something? Is it a fad? And I think a lot of black people are, are sort of waiting to see <laughs> like right. what's, what's what kind of actual real actionable change is going to is going to happen. Oof, yeah. I was just going to add to that real quick was the just to say that, um, you know, it's it's a crazy time right now. And and it's an inspiring time and an upsetting time, but uh, but uh, it's also a really important time to be a writer, you know. And to anyone listening, it's it's our responsibility to 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 document this and pu- and push this conversation forward. And so it's it's also a really inspiring time, I think, and an important time to be a writer and to and to be a part of that change and a part of that conversation. And um, you know, no matter who you write for, whether it's just stuff that you're putting up on your own feed or stuff that you're publishing in national publications, every single one of those words matters, you know? Mm. Yes. And it shouldn't just be incumbent on people of color to share those. No, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Like, we yeah. are all a part of it. And I think that's where people can really use their privilege for good by giving other people a platform, by giving other people um, an opportunity to share their stories and, and to support one another. And I think so often we, you know, one of the most powerful things about writing is that, you know, it's like this empathy machine, isn't it? You can yes. put somebody in someone else's shoes yes. and show them what it feels like to be that person for just, in just a fraction of what it feels like, maybe for just a fraction of a second. But sometimes that fraction of a second is enough to change somebody's mind or enough to make them realize. And um, it reminds me of the Nelson Mandela quote about that love is more powerful than hate, that hate must be taught. No one is born um, hating another person for their color of their skin. Um, and uh, if if hate must be learned, then love can be learned too. It's opposite can be learned too. And so, and that's where we come in as writers, no matter what color of skin you, you are or where you're from, it's, it's, that's, that's where we can come in and, and make a difference by trying to explain this to people and, and sort of put them into other people's shoes and, 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 and hopefully teach them through that, that love and understanding, teach them how not to hate anymore. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, travel and writing both do that, right? Like if you're not a writer, but you're just traveling. I mean, I, I remember some of my most formative experiences of the world are going to a completely different land and, and seeing the level of poverty or, or a totally different culture and being accepted, uh, in a way that, that would never happen here. Like if some some random traveler shows up, like take them into your house and feed them and let them sleep. <laughs> I mean that that yeah. just doesn't happen in the United States of America too often. A stranger like that, um, and to see that to to have that happen to me. So I think the empathy machine kind of plays in both traveling and writing. And if you're talking about travel writing um, and doing it for a living, we all kind of have a level of that, right? And especially if you're a professional, you ha- you come into a place with an objective but you still can end up getting touched by that empathy machine and then end up delivering it back through your writing. And yeah. so let's just talk about the nuts and bolts of it a little bit. Like, obviously I, I, I have an idea of uh, Celeste and Masaveda, what you guys um, do when you're doing guidebook work, but just for the, the listenership, 
maybe explain kind of like how long how long you might go for what your objective is on the ground um how long it might take you to ride up and and kind of the responsibilities you know like the minutiae word counts kind of what what do you do how do you review a hotel how do you review a town that kind of stuff well, speaking as somebody who actually has literally been Celeste's editor at one point in time, <laughs> and mine, um, I'm gonna and yours, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to Celeste on this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm actually just gonna add something that came into my mind when you're asking sure. that question. But one thing yeah. that I've always said about writing guidebooks and the reason why I love it so much is it's almost like getting a university degree in that country. Like you have to learn every aspect. Like you're looking into the politics, you're looking into the culture, you're looking into the uh, current events. You know, it goes so much farther than if you're writing a single article, which I think one of the reasons why I enjoy guidebook writing um, so much is because it really you're really going after the whole entire uh, package. And then, you know, and then you get into the boring bits, like looking at hotels and stuff, which is, um, you know, kind of the nuts and bolts on the ground. You go there. I mean, I've been to. But, you know, uh, Adam, you and I have both covered Southern Thailand. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, I've been to some of the most beautiful beaches in Southern Thailand and, you know, maybe been able to jump in the water for a second, but, mm. you know, never lunch on the beach, never, you know, people think, oh, it's, you know, this travel writing, you're sitting there drinking a cocktail on the beach. No, I don't have time for that. Like, I'm like cruising around, like getting, you know, heat exhaustion looking in every single freaking hotel and restaurant and, you know, meaning, you meaning to- you're checking the rooms, you're asking uh, yeah. to, you know, for yeah. someone to, to take you to a room or two and show you yeah. around. Right. Really lying to them, like giving some elaborate lie about who I am and why. Right. Or <laughs> why like I- thinking I want a place to stay kind of thing. Can you show me a room? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and going in and, um, you know, starting early in the morning cause you got to cover the breakfast places and staying out late at night cause you got to cover the nightlife and, you know, going to sleep, sleeping like death for, you know, six to eight hours and getting up and doing it all over again. It's just completely exhausting. But like, like blagging for 14 yeah. hours straight. <laughs> yeah, perfect, perfect use that. of that word. <laughs> Seven days a week for three months. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the blagger's guide to guidebook writing. <laughs> when you pick up your next guidebook, that guy did a lot that woman guy, whoever did a lot of blagging. A lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably get a lot of- to the editor to get the job. <laughs> we get a lot of people saying, Oh, Lonely Planet, they never came here. They never looked at our place. And it's like, Well, I wouldn't have told you. Like duh. Yeah. Well, especially in Southeast Asia back, right. you know, like now, like if you tell them you're from Lonely Planet, you get you know, you get stalked, like people are following. Yeah, you get the red carpet treatment and mm. that's yeah. not something, that's not, that's not what the, the average traveler is getting. And that's kind of yeah. the point. That's the point for us, right? Yeah. So, you know, some places you can tell them. I remember in Canada, nobody knew what Lonely Planet was. I even had a door slammed in my face when I said I was from Lonely Planet and could I look at a room and a guy wouldn't let me in. Mm. Yeah, right. Uh, Same in the United <laughs> States. Nobody knows who Lonely yeah, Planet is. Yeah, nobody cares right? in North America. <laughs> nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so, I love that. Um, it's a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so, so what we're talking about is people get dropped in. Like we'll drop ourselves into a to a destination. If it's a place like South Thailand, it might be a two to three month job, and you come in with an advance. The Lonely Planet will typically give you an advance of a section of your contract, and that'll be include your expenses. So you might get onto the ground, 
and use budget your expenses as you need to and move from town to town, whatever is in your region. Often it'll be a, a actual state or, or a, um, some sort of uh, official designation of a country, which becomes a chapter or two in the guidebook. And we'll just go for six, seven day weeks. I mean, I remember I've, I've taken jobs where I, I didn't have a day off for two, three months, and then I had to start writing it and the deadlines are tight. So then you still sure. don't have a day off for a couple of months. I mean, that's the kind of workload that we're talking about with Lonely Planet. Isn't that right? Yes. It's backbreaking and exhausting. And everybody thinks we're on vacation. <laughs> well, don't post the scuba diving photos. I know. Let me not post a selfie on the beach here with my toes in the sand. Uh, yeah. They're only no, seeing the highlight reels, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I know travel writers who, you know, who have tried to do guidebook writing and are like, I'm never doing that again. That yes. was just like completely yeah, backbreaking. Yeah, yeah. They can't yeah. hang. Not everybody can hang. Like you no. really oh, have to have a. You hear that, Aaron? <laughs> well, I can't hang. I know it. I know I can. <laughs> you want to hang if you don't have to. You're, you're selling it to me, but still, yeah. <laughs> well, so it used to be. I want to move to Aaron here for a second. Second, but it used to be with Lonely Planet. I don't know if how if it still is. Like originally, you had to kind of audition to get into this pool of writers. Then you had access to editors to pitch yourself for guidebooks, and you get the advance with. I know for, um, you know, because I also uh, freelance for publications just on an article basis, like you, Aaron, um, often you pitch the story and they might, you know, they might buy a plane ticket, but a lot of the expenses are covered on the back end. Um, and it's, it's just a different experience. So, you, you, so explain how you might um, get commissioned to do a story. Yeah. So um, I guess the first mistake a lot of people make, and they think that the publication pays for your travel. And I, I, very rarely experience that. It's um, almost always that you work with a, a destination or a, a tour operator um, to host you or, or help with that travel in some way. Publications really don't have a lot of a lot of money these days, so there's not a lot of budget flying around for for flights and 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 all that other stuff. For me, though, the key if you want to be a, a freelancer, um, and this apply, I mean, this applies if you want to just do a couple of articles a year, kind of moonlighting as a travel writer, or or you know you want to try and do it full time the, the key to 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 getting uh features sold is the is the kind of topicality of your idea the why now mm -hmm, i think a lot mm -hmm. of people you know what they make the mistake of going to vietnam and finding this incredible beach and then saying hey i've just found this incredible beach in vietnam can i write you a feature about it i think it's really hard to get published that way i think the travel journalism is is, is essentially the travel news so it's it's um what's topical what's new what's happening now and in order to get those ideas, um, you know, the the best chance you have is by is really by planning ahead. I always find, you know, like what's coming up. I mean, some of it is, you know, networking with PRs and destinations and knowing this hotel's opening up or there's a new flight here. Uh, you know, some of it's about kind of being on top of the industry side of it. But a lot of it sometimes is just thinking creatively around, you know, maybe it's an anniversary. Like uh, one of the first jobs I ever had, the where I grew up in the in in Sussex in the South of England, they had just formed a, a national park, the South Downs National Park. And so I pitched this idea of doing a hundred mile pub crawl along the length of the entire South Downs National Park, uh, which is a week long walk, a hundred miles, uh, stopping off at every single pub along the way, which kind of follows this historic route. And um, it's a great story, but I, I never would have been able to sell that story if, if there wasn't the hook of it just being turned into a national park. Right. Um, so I think a lot of times, if you look for you know where the big stories are, maybe that's uh, you know like a big anniversary 
I did a bunch of stories on the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love. Um, you know, maybe it's a film coming out. I did a story about um, a while ago, they, you know, the Lone Ranger was coming out and it was a really stereotypical view of, of Native America. So I did a story going to live with the Navajo for a week and, and trying to show people what this, this is what it's really like, good and bad for them right now. And, um, but again, those stories probably would never have got picked up or wouldn't have got the, the coverage they got um, if there wasn't a, a why now, why should we publish this article now? So I always try to look for that first and, and then kind of, and then sort of plan my travels around that rather than the other way around. Perfect advice. And then also when you, 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 do you, do you approach it kind of in a query type letter? And then also you have to focus on the why me, right? Well, if you're a writer trying to pitch right. yourself to an editor, it's why it's the who, what, where, when, and why now, and why me, why I'm the best person to cover this story. Is that, isn't right. that right? Yeah. Right. That's it. And, and, you know, I think as you, as you go on, you tend to specialize a bit and then you get known by certain editors and certain publications yep. for, for covering this kind of thing. You know, when I moved to, uh, to North America, to, to Colorado, um, I started covering, uh, you know, uh, American travel for the British press, which is a really small niche, but, um, but that was great. That was, that was great for me. And I, and I, and I sort of got a name for covering that. And so I got plenty of work for that. So I think it's good to specialize and it's good to, um, you know, you can develop that why me through specializing, but when you're starting out, um, you know, it's good to think about your own expertise and what you can bring to it that no one else can. I think a lot of people start off by writing local and writing about what they know. I think there's a good opportunity for that now with coronavirus too. I think there's going to be a lot more local travel, uh, uh, a lot less long haul travel. So I think that, you know, if you can, if you can write about those, those kind of undiscovered places n near you that no one else knows about, um, I think they're, you know, that's going to be an interesting story for people, particularly if there's, if you can experience those in a way that's, you know, socially distanced and safe and all the rest. So yeah, that why me is, is really important. And, and I guess the most important thing is, is figuring out that formula for the, the pitch or the query. And it's, there's, I don't know if you guys feel this too, but there's, but there's almost a, a formula for making that happen. And I've worked as an editor in the past as well. And, and, you know, you get some really vague and kind of pitches sometimes, and they're just immediate no's because I, I don't know anything about that. You know, I really want a specific idea and I really want to know, I really want to be told how this, um, how this feature is going to develop. What are the themes that are going to come out of it? How, you know, what is, why is it an important story? And, um, you know, and, you know, I go again, I like to really start with that topical hook. This is, you know, this is the why now, this is the why me, and then here's the, the feature as I envisage it. And it's, uh, and I think if you can figure out that formula, um, you know, and obviously try and write really well in the pitch too. I think that uh, when you're starting out, I think that that's, you know, one of the great ways that you can showcase yourself as a, as a writer and someone that cares about that story and, and how you describe it in that pitch or that query. So, um, you know, I, I think ideas, ideas are king when you're, it doesn't matter what you're writing about. If you're freelancing, almost being someone that understands what good ideas are and what, how ideas sell is more important than being a good writer because, uh, someone that comes up with great ideas, uh, will, uh, will get, but is it an average writer will get more work than, than, a than a great writer who comes up with average ideas. Hmm. I love it. Um, Masaveda, were you mostly interested in, in as an editor when you were assigning? Were you mm -hmm. attracted to people with more of a generalist kind of take on things or the specialist? 
I mean, it really depends. Um, when it came to commissioning guidebooks, it, it was, I would really look at like the destination and then look at the person's experience. So like mm-hmm. Celeste, for instance, like I knew she was off, 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 off the beaten path in places. Mm-hmm. That, and sometimes like I would, Celeste would be one of the only people who would pitch for a destination. I'm like, great. Like she knows exactly what she's doing. Um, so I think it's important to like know where people's strengths are and where their interests lie. And then also like what product you're actually commissioning for. So, you know, if I was going to look for uh, an article on the best street food in Rio, like I would have gone with somebody who, um, you know, specific, like specifically focuses on that beat. So Mm -hmm. it really just depends, but Aaron's totally right. Like thinking about, you know, as a writer who's pitching to editors, the best thing you can do in a market that feels super saturated is answer those questions of like, why now? Why this? And why me? Like, why am I suited to do this? Um, Because as we all know, out here blagging and hustling, like the only person, like, like if you don't believe in yourself and sell yourself, then like nobody's going to buy it. So um, I really like would appreciate it when, when writers would, would come at me and just, just keep it 100 and be like, yeah, I'm the shit. This is why I've done X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, all right, let's do this. Um, and then of course, like people who had wonderful personalities versus people who were amazing writers, but kind of jerks, like guess who's going to get the job. Right. The yeah. jerk. No, no, not the jerk. Not the jerk. Not the jerk. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, you know, like the jerk is going to make my life like more difficult at the end of the yes, day. Yes, so yes, I'm going to yes. go with the person who, who is um, open to feedback and who is happy to, um, to revise and revisit things. Yes. Required and do it with, with a good attitude. Going to interject. I have a I have a, a good buddy of mine who's who's also Jonathan Thompson, who's also a, a really uh, great travel writer. But he always says that uh, if you if you want to be a freelancer, you need you need to be a good writer, you need to be good company, and you need to be on time. But you mm. only need to be two of those. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of true. Two of three I like that. It's so true, isn't it? Like yes. if you're a good writer and you're a good company, but you're a bit late, you're probably all right. You know? Yeah, but- <laughs> yeah, that's really true. Um, I just wanted to kind of come to a couple last things if you guys are, still have some time. But uh, Aaron, what you're talking about and, and, and you know mapping out the query for people, I think is really powerful takeaways for people. So I appreciate you doing that. I, I just personally, my, the, my strategy these days is I do a fair amount of desk research beforehand. Not too much, but enough to be able to know the story really well so I can deliver. Like I drop an editor in the first paragraph into the story and then pull back and then piece together kind of why the, the 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 who what where when why now why me from there is that what you do do you do you guys do a fair amount of pre um, research ahead of time or do you do you go on these kind of do you have these experiences and then pitch after the fact I mean per, me personally I do a lot of research ahead of the time I re- yeah. and you know hopefully when you're on you know on the road you you discover things and you come across surprises and that's and you know you you look for that and you you want that to happen but I definitely go with a clear idea of what the story is and the different elements I need to make that story happen and to tell that story. And I think if you don't do that, then it's, you know, you're in danger of of missing the story too, because you want to make sure that, you know, that you see this and you maybe speak to this person. And and a lot of that takes research and setting things up. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in, you know, doing my homework first, um, but then also being really open 
minded and not so sort of closed off on that story that I miss all the amazing things that that are happening all around me. And then I wanted to talk about a little bit about impact because Celeste, early in the conversation, we were talking. You were talking about how guidebooks are kind of coming back into relevancy, um, partly because so many people are using uh, Instagram and and whatever else to map their map their travels. I mean, for somebody, I've I've tried to tell issue based stories, human rights type stories over the years, and the the biggest impact I've ever made on the world has been through kind of business I've been able to bring to people in travel writing. I mean, it's got such a bigger impact on people's everyday lives um, to me than any any other kind of news story that I've tried to do over the years. Um, and so, so to have uh, guidebooks come back into relevancy in terms of getting you off the beaten, uh, off the beaten track, do you want to expand on that and, and why you see that happening? Like what has changed from the, do we need guidebooks to, yeah, guidebooks are still vital? Well, I guess, I mean, I don't know if, if, People are going to be reading guidebooks. Again, I can't say anything about the popularity of guidebooks. I have just found personally that using a guidebook gets me farther off the beaten track than anything I have discovered online. And I usually spend hours and hours researching online before I go on any uh, guidebook assignment nowadays to sort of make sure there's, you know, to look for new things, see if there's anything I missed. And I, I, I generally don't find a lot that way. I find more actually on the ground. And um, I, I feel like most content that's out there that's sort of on the internet, a lot of stuff is kind of regurgitated. It's sort of, you know, one person finds something and then either everybody goes there or everybody sort of says the same thing. Yeah. Whereas guidebooks, particularly Lonely Planet, which is really the only guidebook company that actually was uh, funding these trips, you know, I had the time and the wherewithal to really seek out on the ground, um, you know, it was really firsthand knowledge. I wasn't um, regurgitating anything. And there's a lot of things that I wrote that I know didn't exist anywhere else. And that I was the first person to, you know, to write about. And, you know, people were either going to, you know, read the guidebook and pick it up and use it or not. But, um, but yeah, it's a way it was often sort of more up to date and relevant than stuff that you would find on the internet, you know, that came out two weeks ago. And my research may have been a year ago, but just people don't have the time, the energy and the money to, to seek out what we have been, what we have learned and been trained to do on the, on the guidebook front. So um, I think that's probably a a, a big part of it. Um, The other thing I loved about guidebooks, just sort of spinning off from what you were saying before is, you know, our little, our box texts, which were becoming less and less as publishing was sort of shrinking the books, unfortunately. But I was always sort of able to sort of latch on to these topics that I thought were really important and sort of ignored, you know, direct, uh, you know, as you were saying, like impact of writing, like, you know, I was really able to talk about things that I found, um, you know, politically, culturally important and put focus on that via these box texts, mm-hmm. which a lot of the time you wouldn't see in a travel article or even a blog post or whatever. Um, and so, you know, all these people have this in hand and suddenly, you know, you're telling, you're sort of giving guidelines of how to dress responsibly, how to act responsibly, or that, you know, there's this evil mind that's, you know, about to, um, make a dam or something and put all these villages underwater. And, you you know, here's some things that you can do to help. And it's a great place to, to put in things that you feel strongly about. And um, yeah, I, I love doing it. I really hope it's the same coming out the other end. I have no idea what guidebooks are going to look like 
once this is all over. Well, um, we, we, let's, I mean, what, what I read recently, I think, uh, in some communication is that the guidebook market has shrunk over 90% and that it looks like flights won't be back up to the 2019 levels until 2023. I mean, we're looking at a long road from here to what, you know, what's going to happen next. So we really don't know. Um, and who knows where, where, where this information is going. I mean, Aaron, you transition into doing podcasting kind of in, a, in, in this interesting time. Are you finding that like the current state of the world kind of that you're focusing more effort on podcasting on, on the armchair traveler versus the kind of service oriented travel stories? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that people are, are desperate to travel still and desperate to explore and get out and, you know, maybe now more than ever because it's been taken away from us for, for so long. So for me, I found that, you know, telling these stories, the, the kind of idea of the show is that the world's greatest adventurers come on and tell their best story from the road. So it's, it's a way to tell these great escapism type travel stories um, so people can, you know, travel in their imagination. And, and, I, and I feel like in that sense, it's, it's been good timing and because people really need that right now and um, they're not able to sort of travel for real so they, they can kind of, you know, open that door in their mind instead. Uh, so it's been, it's been great. It's been really interesting. And I think there's an opportunity for people to, to, to look at that, to look at different ways that we can tell stories now. And, um, you know, and as, as writers to adopt new mediums and, you know, I was a bit of a dinosaur for most of my career in terms of just writing for print publications, but it's, it's great to get into a, a different kind of medium and, and tell stories with music and to tell stories, you, you know, in ways that you just couldn't do with the the written word. And one of the things that, that I love about podcasts, I've been a big fan of Kelton's podcast for, for many years, actually, before coming on, but it's, is that I think that you're really right in somebody's ear. You're really kind of just whispering in their ear. Mm. And, and for me, that's a really intimate way to tell stories and, and, um, so that that part of it's been really exciting for me, yeah, definitely. Cool, really quick, go around the around the panel. Once this is all over, and we have our vaccine wristbands, and the new world has been born. Uh, where is the first trip? You don't have to know. I mean, just where where would you like to go? Your first trip. I'm going to Bali. Y'all can meet me there. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I want to go to that coral atoll that you lived on, Celeste, for five oh, years. That sounds uh -oh. pretty awesome. I was just yeah. there. You know, you have to get accustomed to, to pooping in a hole. I hope that's okay. <laughs> I'm used to that. I, I, um, I, think yeah. we're, I think we're all, everyone in the room is used yeah. to that. Yeah. Yeah. All, yeah. we've, all, we've all done it. Yeah. yeah it's part of the deal. Yeah. It, it's very rustic. And yeah, that's, I mean, I'm definitely hopping the first flight out to Tahiti. I'm actually thinking of, you know, risking it and buying my ticket um, for right after Christmas is, which is when I would usually go. Cause I'm, we're, we're kind of hoping to move back there part-time. And oh. so I would want to go and stay, you know, two or three months and base myself. They're there. opening back up in J July. Tahiti is, did you notice that? Did you hear that? Yeah. July 15th. I yeah. don't know how long it's going to last though. They're COVID free right now. And the first plane that comes in, they're no longer going to be COVID free. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. COVID <laughs> COVID still with us. Oh, that old thing. Oh, that, yeah. That's been out of the news for a couple of weeks. I <laughs> Goodness gracious. Well, the good thing about it all is, you know, if we're feeling intrepid enough right now, like plane tickets are pretty affordable. <laughs> that's a good point. I'm, my wife is six months pregnant, so this is the longest I've been in the United States of America straight for a long time. Mm. 
realize now why I was gone so often. Nope, no baby moon for you guys. No baby moon no over here. Baby moon. We were gonna go like swim with beluga whales or some shit. Oh man. I know. You'll just have to take the kid. Exactly. That's the way it's gonna be. Twenty twenty three. Twenty twenty three. Where are you going, Adam? What? Where are you going? Where's your trip? Oh, my trip in twenty twenty three. That's a good point. Yeah. I didn't say my trip. Um, <laughs> you know, um, to swim with whales somewhere. Um, I was thinking of Norway, the fjords, and to dive with some killer whales. But I would do sperm whales in Dominica or uh, belugas up in Canada, somewhere like that. Well, y'all are welcome on the atoll, just so you know. I will Thank take you. you up on that. You may regret that, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're coming. As long as you can poop in a hole. No problem. Go. We got it. We got it. I'm going to practice now. No, no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Kelton Reed, back to you. He said he lost audio. Did he go to the bathroom? Is he pooping in a hole somewhere? Kelton, come Kelton. back. He said he lost audio. Hello. Right on. And everyone stay safe out there. And uh, and it's very exciting what's happening right now. I can't get I can't, I can't, you know, it's, it's very exciting. So, um, yeah. I mean, who would have ever thought in, in the middle of a pandemic? Like, to me, it's like, you know, this is, this is history book stuff. So mm-hmm. let's keep yeah. it going. I think you're right. One thing I didn't say, Masaveda is a, like, there is that Arab Spring thing, right? That yep. happened. Where, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, exactly. you know, I, I can see anything happening from Trump losing all 50 states to him winning. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know. We, just, we don't crazy. know. Don't say it. All we know is the revolution <laughs> will be televised. <laughs> <laughs> it will be televised. It will be. All right, guys. Great, great work. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week.